When he woke up on August 3, 2018, Mapache had no reason to believe his life was about to change forever. It was in the morning in August in Texas. So it was like kind of humid and like sunny and warm. It wasn't exactly a normal day. Mapache and other activists were protesting outside of an ice processing facility in San Antonio. They've been there for more than two weeks, sleeping in tents, trading off night watches, maintaining a 24-hour presence in front of the detention center, calling for its immediate closure, as well as the abolishment of immigration and customs enforcement. The group had joined a national movement called Occupy Eyes. 2018, sort of like, that was when, like, child detention camps started to come out. These fascist movements pop up. Like, a lot of people really started to know, realize what ICE was doing and how much worse it was getting under Trump. 2018. Trump had been in power for a year and a half. Already, some of the policies he'd enacted were ripping open a contentious battle for America. Mapache and other activists on one side, fighting to end family separation and the horrific treatment of immigrants. Neo-Nazis and white nationalists on the other side. Clashes jumped from social media to real life. Like what happened at the camp where Mapache was. Early one morning, the sleeping protesters were attacked by a group of masked men. It was tense at the camp. Mapache and the other protesters were always on guard. A small microcosm of the tensions playing out across the country. At the time of the Occupy ICE protest in San Antonio, Mapache was 18. Freshly graduated from high school. He'd been thinking of himself as an anarchist, going to rallies, protests, and demonstrations for a couple of years already. I started listening to punk music. I started looking at anarchism and hanging out with all these people, really cool people who I, like, I felt comfortable with and who understood my situation and who said, hey, what's being done to you is an injustice. And it's part of this bigger system. Just like me, Mapache was undocumented a DACA recipient from Mexico. I also got involved in activism and eventually politics because I didn't see another choice. Mapache and his younger brother were born in Juarez. Over time, their parents became increasingly worried about the safety of raising their kids in Mexico. All the drug wars, all the death, all the killings, femicide in this country, all of it, it, it people talk about it like a huge natural disaster that like, hit this country in a wave, la inseguridad. In 2003, his family got a temporary visa. A couple of months before Mapache turned four, they crossed the bridge from Juarez to El Paso and never went back. They moved from city to city looking to join a church where Mapache's dad could be a pastor. But that never quite worked out. His parents made ends meet with service jobs. They always made it work, you know, but... Uh, a, a lot of it was that instability growing up. Very, very young, you realize, like, there's some sort of, like, unfair treatment going on here. And it's, it's just constant, it's just a constant frustration, and it's just a constant fight. So in high school, when Mapache met people who were organizing against injustice, something clicked. There are ways for you to get together with community with people who support and love you to build your own political power and really just push for a better life and, and you can do it. And so I did. I still do. I was in college when it happened to me, 
when the state took away my scholarships because I was undocumented. And I found out there were hundreds like me, just at my own school. I realized I had to fight, but I didn't have to fight this alone. You don't really get involved in activism. You don't choose it like a career path. Eventually, you just get tired of living, of feeling like shit all the time and living under the boot of the United States immigration system and you fucking do something about it. To me, it's, it's a lot more than activism. It's, it's survival. Survival. That's why Mapache woke up in a ramshackle campsite in front of a Texas ICE facility in August of 2018. He was protesting to close the detention center and for the rights of the immigrants locked up inside. He had no idea he was about to become one of them. I was the only one awake at camp. And so I head out of the tent, it's humid, I really have to pee. And then this like car pulls in behind me while I'm walking through the lot, like just this big ass truck. The truck was unmarked. Mapache thought it was a worker from the area. This guy steps out and goes, excuse me. And then I see that he has a gun and a, and a badge. He's a plainclothes guy, but like with a gun and a badge. And I'm like, what the fuck? And he goes, you're under arrest. And he runs after me, grabs me and puts me in handcuffs. And then they put me up against like the hood of that car. That's where I tell them, like, I have DACA. And then they're like, not anymore, you don't. Mapache's two years of DACA protection expired the night before he was picked up. This was how he found out his DACA renewal application had been denied that morning. Now, he was in ICE custody. Nobody knew I had been taken. My friends all woke up, and for a couple of hours, they all thought I went home. But in reality, from that moment on, I'm, I'm fucking detained. This is Homeland Insecurity, a podcast about how we all became the enemy. I'm your host, Eric Andiola. Mapache's story happened in 2018. But what we saw then is now being repeated on a national scale. In this episode, we're going to look at how the Department of Homeland Security has broadened its powers to a terrifying point in 2020, seizing an opportunity they saw in the movement for racial justice. On May 25, 2020, 46-year-old George Floyd was killed by a police officer in Minneapolis. Officer Derek Chauvin knelt on the man's neck for 7 minutes and 46 seconds. Three other officers stood by as Floyd suffocated to death. He'd been stopped because of a counterfeit $20 bill. He died that day because he was Black. While his loved ones mourned, millions around the world took to the streets to mourn with them. The largest protest in U.S. history. In June and July, somewhere between 15 and 26 million people in the United States demonstrated in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. Across the country, protests are still calling for an end to police brutality and defunding the police demanding an end to centuries of racist systems used against black and brown bodies, insisting on justice for all. In June, the Department of Homeland Security descended on those nationwide protests, and in July, started throwing Portland demonstrators into unmarked vans. Violence escalated. 
tear gas and rubber bullets rained down on peaceful gatherings. The Department of Homeland Security was supposed to protect the nation from terrorist attacks. But now, it's being mobilized against its own people, against citizens of the United States of America. For most of the nation, it's pretty bizarre to see DHS use these tactics to go after citizens. But for immigrants like me, it's not surprising. I wanted to talk to someone who could relate. I turned to my friend, Jonathan J. Screen. I believe we're in a moment of crisis, transformation, and possibility. Oh my God, yes, absolutely. They are a queer Black activist. And like me, they are undocumented. I say they because that is the gender pronoun Jonathan uses. With the death of George Floyd really sparking another wave of protest and really this big window of possibility for the demands that our communities and Black abolitionist organizers have been pushing for a long time around defunding the police. So what people keep forgetting is that ICE is the largest law enforcement agency in the country. So I'm like, Same thing. it could all go. It could all go. It could all go. Jonathan is right. The Department of Homeland Security, which ICE is part of, has 60,000 law enforcement officers, the biggest in the country, bigger than the FBI, the DEA, and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives combined. But what, how do you see this? Like, what would you imagine? Like, can we abolish ICE? How would you explain that to somebody who doesn't really understand what we're trying to say? Yeah, yeah. I know that uh, more police officers are not going to be able to educate our kids, right? And oftentimes when we look at the root cause of crime, we're really talking about people who, it's really poverty, right? What I envision is a country, a city, a state, whatever the jurisdiction is, where our schools are fully funded, where our healthcare system is free for everyone who needs it where our libraries are well-resourced and staffed, where our parks are well-kept and available for people to co-play. Jonathan was 13 when their parents brought them to the United States from Panama. Since then, they've been fighting to improve the lives of Black immigrants in the country. In 2016, they founded UndocuBlack. That organization offers her community network and provides resources for undocumented Black people in the U.S. Sometimes it can be hard to see because of the way groups are labeled and categorized. But the movement for immigrant rights and the movement for Black rights are cut from the same cloth. Both are pushing against a violent system and calling for justice. We need to be able to contest for political power to make that demand happen. The fact that organizers right now are asking for defunding the police and, and, and making demands that six months ago, seven months ago would have been uh, thought of as wild, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Like organizers on the ground are paving the way and their imagination is what's going to actually get us there. Immigrant rights advocates like me need to keep organizing and showing up for the Black community. DHS is bad for all immigrants. But regardless of what country you come from, if you're Black, it's even worse. I think that even just like talking about the legal underpinning of this country and why Blackness has been criminalized from the literally the very beginning, it makes sense that when you talk about immigrants within the immigration context, that the legal framework allows for us to be even lower on the totem pole. 7% of all immigrants in the U.S. are Black. 
but they make up 20% of immigrants fighting deportation. And the disproportionate numbers don't stop there. Black immigrants in detention are six times more likely to end up in solitary confinement. Their bonds are higher. On average, Haitian immigrants have to pay 54% more than any other immigrants to get out of detention. Black immigrants are also three times more likely to be detained and deported on an alleged criminal offense, even though there's no evidence that Black immigrants commit more crimes than any other immigrant population. And when we talked about these statistics about how Black immigrants were more likely to be detained, to be deported, to be criminally charged, all of those things, I always reminded people that actually, like, I, my goal was not to get Black immigrants to be treated the same mediocre way that other immigrants were treated. Like, that's never the goal. Mm. Like, I don't mm -hmm. want people to be placed in solitary confinement to the same statistics that other immigrant groups. The goal is to have a system that reflects who we say we are as a country, right? Like, that is actually, like, the big picture goal. The second thing that I think about is, like, this administration has been flirting, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be... You know, actually, no, I won't say flirting. It was, I think we've been descending into authoritarianism as a country for some time. As organizers, we've seen uh, all of these agencies come together to surveil us, to repress uh, our work, to really literally kidnap our people, right? Like, you, you know this better than anyone else, right? Like, it, it's yeah. been happening for our, to our folks for a long time. As immigrants and as activists who have been in the forefront of this fight, we've been targeted by immigration, by DHS for years. Yeah, yeah. So it's happening for our, to our folks for a long time. And in so many ways, we and so many of the other folks that these agencies, DHS, local police forces have been kidnapping and inflicting damage on, we were the test case. And they are now beginning to test that out with a broader public Right. And people are surprised. I absolutely agree. Mainstream media was like talking about like some of the protesters in Portland being taken in our marked bands. as like this new thing, you know, it's like, oh, now they're doing this. And of course, you know, <laughs> I'm just sitting there in front of TV. I'm like, really, this is not new. We've seen this happen before. And to me, you know, we definitely were a test case for, for what DHS and the Trump administration have been wanting to do. That's what happened to Mapache in 2018. Two plainclothes ICE agents driving unmarked cars picked him up at a protest, and no one knew he'd been taken away. They took his cell phone and drove him an hour away to the South Texas Detention Complex in pure sulfur processing. I was put by myself in this, like, jail cell. It's the metal toilet, a concrete bench, and like a like a poly glass or whatever that bulletproof glass is uh, on the front. It was a surreal moment for Mapache. This whole time, I'm, like, fighting this, like, whole, this awful, like, immigration system and all this time. And now I'm in a detention center, and I'm seeing just how dystopian it is. Through the glass of his holding cell, he watched DHS agents and GEO Group's private prison employees at their desks. I look out like the window and I see GEO's giant logo. And then right next to it is like the Homeland Security logo. Painted on the wall like giant. This, this is a business opportunity for people. 
So I'm just standing there in the cell and I'm just like seeing the inner workings of this all happening. And it's just people at their desk doing paperwork. All of my fucking life and all of this like pain and all of this fighting had like I'm in a det- I'm in a cell now and I'm looking and these people are just doing paperwork. Like that's all it is. It's just paperwork. And rent a cops. It was here that Mapache found out the FBI had been watching his social media activity over the past few months. I don't know. I don't know what else to say about the tweets except that like I should have been <laughs> I shouldn't have tweeted them, I guess. There's no sugarcoating it. The tweets are not great. I was angry and I was being angry in public. I was expressing my anger. Between March and June of 2018, Mapache put out a handful of tweets that mentioned things like cop killing and Molotov cocktails. They're enough to attract law enforcement, but they don't go far enough to prosecute. They were the frustrated rants of a teenager. Reyes represented Mapache. We know that if he was a citizen, law enforcement wouldn't have even raised an eyebrow at those tweets. But since Mapache was undocumented, ICE used those tweets against him. If I was an American citizen, those tweets wouldn't have ever amounted to anything, I believe. And my lawyer believed. But because I wasn't, they amounted to a deportation. DHS's history of surveilling immigrants extends back to its inception. When men from majority Muslim countries were required to register themselves. Even DACA is a form of government registration. It did provide an opportunity, but also, like, it's also so obvious how, like, that it's a way to keep an eye on immigrants. Like, DACA is basically just a giant database of undocumented people, you know. If any DACA recipients ever get in trouble with the law, we can find ourselves stripped from our privileges and deported. If you do anything we don't like, we can take this away from you. At any time. We, we have your fingerprints, we have your name, we know your family. It's like a... It, it is like a, a threat, a way to put as many undocumented people under a watchful eye and like make them fit this narrative of what they should be. The good immigrant. Mapache's records show he had no criminal history, and he was an award-winning film student at his high school. So the government found a loophole. They waited for his DACA privileges to expire and rejected his application for renewal that same day. He wasn't the first or the last advocate to be targeted. In 2018, NPR highlighted more than 20 immigration activists who were arrested or put into deportation proceedings. My name is Christian Sanchez. I'm a staff attorney for Raices at the San Antonio office. Right now, I'm representing a group of transgender women who are detained at Pearsall and they are fighting their asylum claims. These women are the most vulnerable clients that we have who are suffering a lot of abuse and violence in their home countries. They come from places where transgender women can just be killed in the street and nothing happens and nobody cares. We've been able to win over 15 asylum cases for these women and that allows them to build a life in a way that they've never been able to before. Our work depends on you. Visit homelandinsecuritypodcast.com. 
Tensions over Trump policies have continued to build since the 2018 Occupy ICE movement that Mapache was involved in. This year, they came to a head. We've been witnessing protests about police brutality around the nation. Some police have been responding, though, with more police brutality. And I want I to warn mobilizing you. all available federal resources, civilian and military, to stop the rioting and looting, to end the destruction and arson, and to protect the rights of law-abiding Americans. In cities across the country, river bullets rain down on rows of mothers and veterans. Clouds of tear gas engulf peaceful demonstrators. Federal officers in fatigues and body armor. It feels that the government is treating the unrest like a war against its own citizens. When the Black Lives Matter protests started this year, I and many of my undocumented friends felt nervous. As always, undocumented people have to be on high alert because the threat of deportation is very real. I always left the protest early to protect myself. Even the smallest interaction with law enforcement or just sending a tweet could create problems for us. Those anxieties were made worse when reports came out that an unknown number of CBP and ICE agents had been deployed across the country to support local law enforcement. CVP and ICE have always been allowed to step in during emergency situations, but usually that's reserved for when state and local governments ask them to. What played out in Portland is something else entirely. The head of the Department of Homeland Security was in downtown Portland today amid growing tension between local and federal government. Acting Secretary Acting Chen, Homeland Security Secretary came to Portland. He writes Portland has been under siege from, as he puts it, violent anarchists. Part of what happened in Portland is that there just looks like there was a breakdown in the proper order of operations. Carrie Cordero is a national security expert. She actually used to work in national security. She handled critical counterterrorism and counterintelligence investigations while she was attorney advisor at the U.S. Department of Justice. She's been researching the evolution of DHS for years. I'm the Robert Gates Senior Fellow at the Center for a New American Security. And I'm also an adjunct professor at Georgetown Law. In late June, after weeks of unrest across the country, the president signed an executive order. He deputized CBP, ICE, and other federal agents to assist with the protection of federal monuments, memorials, statues, or property. In essence, Trump signed off on sending DHS officers wherever he believes federal property is threatened, whether or not the city or state wants them there. The powers are temporary, six months, which means he'll be able to do this until the day after Christmas. Without getting into a debate about states' rights versus federal power, that order is technically legal. It certainly was in the authority of DHS through the Federal Protective Service to protect the courthouse. There's no question about that. If the agents had stuck to their stated goal, it would not have been such a big story. Obviously, that's not what happened. The Portland police should have been in charge of providing public safety for that protest activity. But the way in which DHS deployed its personnel, the lack of judgment in the way that they appeared, the way that they were detaining individuals, clearly were not in scope of the way that protest-related policing activity take place. Even with the executive order, DHS had no business leaving the courthouse and throwing U.S. citizens into unmarked vans. 
What happened in Portland, I think, is sort of a snapshot, an example of DHS acting without appropriate oversight and accountability. Throughout this podcast, we've examined how DHS has expanded its powers and the scope of this cruelty over and over again, all in the name of national security. Those scenes from Portland over the summer, they upset a lot of people, including Barbara Boxer. She's worked in government for four decades, 24 years as a senator for California. Sending unmarked private police, in many ways his own private militia, into Portland, strutting around the streets, not what he said they were doing, protecting a federal building. No, they went into the streets, they hauled people into cars, they used tear gas, terrible things on our own people. (laughs) And so how ironic, you want to defend America, but you're hurting Americans. The former senator couldn't believe how President Trump was using DHS to promote his campaign message of law and order. If the cities and the counties and the states want help from the federal government, they can ask the president for help. And that's the thing, to have the federal government come in against the wishes of the local people, that's gotta be prohibited, that's wrong, completely. In 2002, she voted in favor of creating the Department of Homeland Security. When we took up the bill to increase security in our own country after the terrorist attack, uh, the country was at the height of anxiety. There was tremendous fear of another attack. I remember flying on airplanes right after it and nobody was there. There were like three people and everyone was so afraid. Um, They were ready to jump up if someone got up to go to the front restroom, you know, and say, what are you doing? In that tense climate, Congress was tasked with finding a way to make sure another terrorist attack of that scale would never happen again. It was so frightening what had happened. When you're in that circumstance in your mind, uh, you may not make the best decisions. Boxer had her reservations about creating the department. The concerns that I had that I expressed at the time in the record was that we were gonna lose accountability because so many agencies were being absorbed Worried enough that she supported an amendment to delay its creation. Five minutes to the senator from California for that purpose. I have tremendous misgivings about the size and shape of this uh, department. This is a huge change in our government. We will be taking 170,000 employees and shifting them over to a new department. I've been in, in government a long time, and I started at local government. And one of the lessons I learned is do something right. And mostly I learned, don't do something so big, so huge, that there is less accountability rather than more accountability. So I th- Boxer was one of only 28 senators to vote yay for that amendment. The whole thing is uh, problematical looking back on it because it turned immigration into a threat rather than the wonderful thing that it is, which is an expansion of our country, being inclusive. You know, we we have been that great experiment that, um, you know, we always welcomed immigrants from all over the world. But when the day came to make a decision on creating the Department of Homeland Security. When I was faced with the up or down vote, I voted aye. I think it was 90 to nine, something like that. 
and I should have been been the tenth no vote. I've taken lonely votes before, and I I didn't do it. She now recognizes there was something she hadn't considered when she made that vote in 2002. I never ever imagined that a corrupt executive could turn this into his own police force. I never imagined an executive like this one or a department head like the one we have. They could care less and it's very uh, disturbing. My name is Luz Varela and I am currently a legal assistant at Raices Children's Program. My job consists of helping the children who arrive to the border and they get detained and they get sent to a shelter. I talk to them about their rights, what's to come for them in terms of legal. And then we do an intake to see if they qualify for a legal relief here in the United States, so a visa. We deal with a lot of children that come from very rough places, a life of violence, from poverty, from traumas, and then they come in a journey that is really dangerous for them. And so when they arrive, they have no trust for us. But once we are able to build that trust with them and that relationship, it becomes so fulfilling to us and, and very important to them to have someone that they can trust. We want to help people that want a better life. And that's the only thing that we care about. The best way to support this work is to donate to Raices. Visit homelandandsecuritypodcast.com. Trump appointed his cronies to lead DHS people who wouldn't think twice before deploying national troops on its own citizens. And the way they got those positions is just another example of Trump's abuse of power. Here's Cordero again. What President Trump did is he decapitated the Senate-confirmed leadership of the department. If you look at the list of senior officials on the DHS website, you'll find a number of people with roles described as acting or performing the duties of. When someone leaves their post, they quit, are fired, or die. A new person steps into the open position until it can be filled through the official process. Currently, the leadership of the department, um, even though there are many components that should be headed by a Senate-confirmed official, they are not. As part of the checks and balances written into the Constitution, the president can nominate someone for a certain position. But then that person has to be congressionally approved. You'll hear members of Congress ask that nominee, you know, do you commit to working with this committee? Do you commit to responding to requests that this committee has for information? And so once that person is actually in the position, if they're confirmed, they have accountability to Congress. Actings are supposed to be temporary placeholders until a congressionally approved person can step in. We have not had a congressionally approved head of DHS since April of 2019. By far, the longest of any open cabinet-level position during his administration. And the reason that he likes actings is because they are only accountable to him. Because you have an acting AG until you get bar confirmed. Yes. You get an acting defense secretary, an acting chief of staff, an acting interior okay. secretary. It's easier to make moves when they're acting. I like acting because I can move so quickly. Mm -hmm. It gives me more flex flexibility. These individuals working in these acting capacities know that at any moment they could be next, particularly serving under this president who has been seen to fire people at will, fire people by tweet, um, fire people publicly before they even know that they've been fired. And I think what that does as a practical matter is it makes them more susceptible to um, being pressured from the White House 
um, being grateful for the job and living in fear of being fired. When the president signed an executive order that sent CBP and ICE agents to police protesting citizens, someone appointed by Congress would have had the political backup to say no. Instead of what Acting Secretary Chad Wolf said on Fox News. I don't need invitations by the state, uh, state mayors or uh, state governors to do our job. We're going to do that uh, whether they like us there uh, mm-hmm. or not. Or what Acting Deputy DHS Secretary Ken Cuccinelli said on NPR. With as much lawbreaking as going on, uh, we, we're seeking to uh, prosecute as many people as are breaking the law as it relates to, to federal jurisdiction. This is a posture we intend to continue, not just in Portland, but in any of the facilities that we're responsible for around the country. In response to protests calling for less law enforcement, the president authorized the opposite and escalated the situation. DHS was never meant to run the nation's largest law enforcement agency. It was never meant to be used against its own citizens. And it was definitely never meant to promote a president's political agenda. It undermines the confidence in these institutions that that are trying to keep Americans safe or trying to keep Americans protected from some external threat. Over the years, DHS has shown a consistent pattern of using its powers in a way that simply does not match the stated objective. After DHS was created, Former Senator Boxer continued to have doubts about it, especially when she saw how the immigration side was being handled, when she saw screaming babies ripped from their mother's arms. I never did want those immigration services to be tied into this homeland security. Like, these children are a threat to the homeland. It's just absurd. 18 years after her vote, having seen that same agency turn against Americans, Senator Boxer has regrets. I have to admit something that nobody likes to admit when they're in office, that they were wrong, did not see the threats that we now face because of this behemoth. I was wrong. I think that's a sentiment a lot of people can relate to these days. What if I'd said something sooner? Push back harder? Maybe you demonstrated it or raised money after the Muslim ban or during family separation. Maybe you were one of the millions of nonviolent protesters that went out into the street to support Black Lives Matter after George Floyd's murder. Mapache was fighting for justice outside of the San Antonio ICE facility in 2018. He risks everything to support change in the United States. But if that day comes, when his efforts and those of other activists are rewarded, it's unlikely he'll be here to witness it firsthand. After 43 days in detention, Mapache was deported to Mexico, even though he barely spoke Spanish, and he hadn't been there since he was three years old. My dreams were all set, and like the parts of the future that I kind of had like figured out and set up for myself are in the States, or were in the States. And so now I'm just kind of like figuring out, like now that that's not an option, what, what else does like this world have to offer to me? I don't know what's next. When Raisa started working on this podcast a year ago, we couldn't have predicted the place this country would be in today. We had no idea that by the time we wrapped, we'd see the current administration fumble a global pandemic or watching horror as DHS turned on its own citizens, applying the tools they had practiced on immigrants for almost two decades. 
to suppress everyone's right to free speech. Sitting in Monterrey, Mexico, unsure if he'll ever be able to return to the country he called home for 18 years of his life, Mapache put it like this. A mother being separated from her children, it, you know, it's not a ghost doing it. It's not a godly, inhuman spirit that is just separating these people. It's not destiny. It's men in uniform physically, physically detaining people. It's all violence. Every day in detention, you experience violence when an agent holds you up against a wall, puts chains on you. How are you going to protect other people from the harm? If you are a United States citizen and you're listening to this podcast, how are you protecting people from this harm? At the core, these eight episodes aren't just about DHS or immigrants. The things we talked about, corruption, mass detention, deportation, separated families and asylum seekers. These things don't happen in a vacuum. Violence is everywhere in American society. And I can tell you firsthand experience how that violence happens in the immigration system. Who has their boot on your neck? I hope you figure out ways to take it off. 19 years ago, Around 3,000 people died on September 11th. Fear of another terrorist attack led to the creation of a giant law enforcement department that was meant to protect us. This new agency will control our borders and prevent terrorists and explosives from entering our country. It will work with state and local... The government lumped together 22 different agencies, hundreds of thousands of employees to create the Department of Homeland Security and they gave it a huge budget with basically no oversight. Over the last two decades, we have allowed this new terrifying law enforcement machine to go after the most marginalized people. And largely, we have looked the other way. It was supposed to stop us from feeling afraid, but it's done the opposite. It's made us more afraid. This gigantic agency has morphed into a dangerous threat to the ideals that the United States is supposed to stand for. If we don't act now, it will get worse. Which is why DHS has to go. It's time to dismantle the Department of Homeland Security. It's time to reimagine an immigration system that puts our humanity first. No one should feel unsafe in the United States of America. And that includes our amazing and beautiful and productive immigrant community. We are sick and tired of seeing little children, seeing little babies taken from their mothers. It's not fair. And history will not be kind to us. As a nation and as a people, we can do better, much better. Rather than talking about putting up a fence, why don't we work out some recognition of our mutual problems, make it possible for them to come here legally? We must take sides. Sometimes we must interfere. When human lives are endangered, when human dignity is in jeopardy, national borders and sensitivities become irrelevant. This is a great inheritance to realize that we are the descendants of 40 million people 
who left other countries, other familiar scenes, to come here to the United States to build a new life, to make a new opportunity for themselves and their children. Homeland Insecurity is a Raíces production. Produced by Alexandra Garreton and executive produced by Sarah Barrett, Jonathan Ryan, and Brian Carmel. With production help from Carmen Graterol, Aldonza Contreras, and Natasha Pizzi. Fact-checking by Laura Bollard. Original music by Nick Carpenter and Juan Victor Belisario. Special thanks to Faisal Aljaburi and Natalie Locke. I'm your host, Eric Andiola. If you're moved by what you've learned in this podcast, then we need you now more than ever to get involved in the fight for migrant justice. Go to RaicesTexas.org to learn more. And one more thing. We're getting a lot of really disturbing comments on Apple and other platforms. Stuff like, you're here illegally. When you read these, you can tell it's from people who didn't even listen to the podcast. They just want to attack me because I'm an immigrant. The best way to help us fight these kinds of attacks is to rate the podcast and leave a review. If you listen this far, we absolutely want to hear from you.